Well, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark one more time, to Mark chapter 8, if you have a Bible. We're only going to be looking at a couple of verses, but as I've been uh, doing, as we've considered a few different passages here, I'm going to be trying to set this in the larger context, both of the original readers and for us as well. Mark 8, we're going to pick up reading in... um, Verse 30, looking especially at verses 34 and 35. Mark 8, uh, verse 30, Jesus speaking here. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sakes and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will will a man give in exchange for his soul? Amen. Let's pray once more together, please. Our Father in heaven, as you were pleased by the Holy Spirit to inspire these words to be written down for our instruction, may that same Spirit likewise illumine them and teach us in how we may follow our dear Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to imagine that we are living in the nation's capital, and we have just suffered an attack by terrorists. Almost half of the city is burning, or already made a smoking ruin, including the part where many of your brothers and sisters in Christ live. Gangs of armed men, nobody knows who, going around the city, attacking firefighters even, throwing burning torches into warehouses and buildings that are still standing, and as you might imagine, uh, a great many lives have already been lost in the fire. The whole nation is shocked and indignant as news of this horrible event spreads. And the surviving residents of our capital city, who have lost loved ones, are furious at these terrorists. Who did this? No one has claimed responsibility. Everyone wants justice for the murderous people who have brought such devastation on our families, our homes, our businesses, our capital, and our great nation. Uh, I suppose, as always must happen, there are some conspiracy theorists who are pointing the finger at government, saying surely this was an inside job orchestrated from the very top. Our government's not very popular, it's true, and homes on the Upper West Side completely survived the attack. But most people find it hard to believe that any one of our own nation's officials would do such a thing to the city where they live, to their own people. 
Well, our government is quick to respond to this catastrophe. They bring in food and shelters, and they give people some emergency money. They provide other relief, but there's nothing that can they, they can do to assuage the people's fury and the heartache uh, and the anger toward the terrorists who have struck such a dreadful blow to the city and the nation, far worse than anything we had seen to this point. After just a few days, though, our government announces that they have found the ones responsible, that some of them have confessed, and that they are going to work to bring the whole group to a very public justice. It was, as many people already suspected, a religiously motivated attack by a splinter sect from the Middle East, where there had been, indeed, so much political instability for years, and tensions had been riding high for years due to a backlash against imperialism. Many people had been quietly concerned about the spread of this religion in their own country and the immigration of religious zealots into the West and how they had been quietly recruiting adherents from the poorer and disaffected classes of the people. And now they announce the worst of all fears have been realized. These rascals that have murdered our families, destroyed our homes, and devastated our capital. Do you know who they are? These wicked Christians. You are living, of course, in the city of Rome in A.D. 64. Nero is the emperor. Nero uh, desired to get rid of the poorer districts of Rome and rebuild them in grand style, what we might call urban renewal of a sort. The people objected. Nero tried various political maneuvering and incentives to move the people out and rebuild, but he failed. And so, he took the matter into his own hand. He had the districts burned, and the fire spread further than he intended, as so often happens. The result was the Great Fire of Rome, AD 64. Nearly half the city was destroyed, and only four of the 14 districts of the capital were spared. And with the rumor gained strength that the fire had been ordered from the top, from Nero himself, Nero put the blame on an easy target, a new religious splinter group from the Middle East about whom the worst rumors had been circulating, a people whom many of the Romans feared, Christians. If you're a Christian anywhere in the empire, but especially in the city of Rome, you are in a dreadful, dreadful position. You may have been a Christian for 20 years and enjoyed peace. You may have enjoyed the protection of the Roman officials and authorities. There had been, indeed, some persecution, but in general, the Roman Empire had defended the Christians. You remember how in the book of Acts, how much help and safety the officials provided, Paul and the others. But now, every single day, as it were, you are in the headlines one visitor to some Christian service heard the minister say that the world is going to end in fire. Well, now, this doesn't sound very good for you, as it's being repeated among the Roman citizens. When the imperial government announced that Christians set the fire, the reaction was swift and terrible, and it went on for a few years. Here's the account from Tacitus, the Roman historian who was alive at that time. Not a Christian, by the way. He writes, To stifle the report, 
that the emperor was responsible for the fire. Nero provided others to bear the accusation in the shape of people who were commonly called Christians in detestation of their abominable character. These Nero visited with every refinement of punishment. First, they were arrested, who confessed to be Christians, and then, on receiving information, an immense number were convicted, not so much on the charge of arson, but on the charge of ill will toward mankind in general. Their deaths were turned into a form of amusement. They were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts to be torn to pieces by dogs or were fastened to crosses to be set on fire. And when the daylight came to an end, they were burned for illumination at night. Nero threw open his gardens for the spectacle and made it the occasion of a circus exhibition. End quote. And so all over the city, Christians were arrested, crucified, or thrown to wild beasts in the arena. Both Peter and Paul lost their lives at this time, according to tradition. And this violent persecution, as I say, lasted for four long years. The church was shaken to its foundations. Christians were understandably tempted to deny their Lord and abandon the faith. And the greatest number of them remained faithful to the end even unto death. In fact, well, again, if these uh, ancient testimonies and witnesses mean anything, so many gave a magnificent, gracious testimony before the courts and at the Colosseums. And as the people saw the Christians being put to death with such grace and love for their torturers and confidence and aplomb, like Stephen, whose face was like the face of an angel, praying for their persecutors. People began to wonder what was going on, and the Christian faith began to spread all the more. It was a terrible time for the Christians. You never knew whether you'd be next in the arena. You never knew whether your wife and children would be snatched up and made the next torches of Nero's garden covered in pitch and set alight. Imagine the fear and agony and how these frightened, lonely Christians in Rome were going to live under such persecution. What's going to happen to these Roman Christians now? And who can help them? Well, enter John Mark, uh, a cousin of Barnabas, about whom we read a few weeks ago in the morning in the book of Acts. For the last several years, you know where he's been? He's been in Rome as a fellow missionary with Peter. John Mark had been brought up in Jerusalem in a godly home. He became a believer in Christ in the early days. Christians used to meet in his mother's home. Mark knew the apostles. He'd been a fellow missionary with Paul and had, for the last several years, been working with Peter, as I say, but now an intense time of persecution has come and Mark has to help these distressed believers in Rome, several of them no doubt converts from their ministry, but how is he going to help them? Well, here it is. Apart from everything else he's going to do, he is going to record for the Roman church and for posterity Peter's testimony of Christ. 
The early church fathers, some of whom knew Peter, tell us that Mark wrote before Peter's death, which happened sometime between 64 and 67, during this time of persecution, and wrote Peter's words at the request of the Roman church. Can't say for sure, of course, when it's written. It doesn't say. But the book itself, if not actually written at this time, as it seems certainly likely, we know is at least intended by God to minister powerfully to the original readers during these years of persecution. This by way of extended introduction to a rather short sermon, all things considered, you say. Um, The passage that I read to you earlier is usually preached as a challenge, and frankly, when I started in on it myself this week, I was doing it as a challenge. There is something very stirring here, is there not? Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What will it profit a man if he gain the world and lose his soul? Uh, There is a call to take up the cross and follow Jesus. It is a challenge. But my point to you this evening is that for a people under persecution, this is a great comfort. That is to say, this is not a theoretical matter. They are taking up their cross. By the thousands, they are taking up their cross. And and as they read these words, as a people under persecution who are taking up their cross, this is designed to give them wisdom and comfort, to know that Christ has walked this same way before us. And if we must go to the cross, as they must, they they are to recognize, oh, we are following him. Now, there are so many important details that Mark records for the people throughout the whole book. I'm just focusing on one particular passage this evening. But if if you go from the beginning to the end, you'll, you'll see how many extra things are thrown in that are not in the other Gospels that would mean so much to these people in such a time. Just for example, a few examples. At the beginning, Mark 1.13, uh, Jesus was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. Wild beasts. Um, okay, so we all know there was this time that Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness, but why is only Mark pointing out that, that Jesus was with the wild beasts? Or we remember then what what it meant to be a Christian in Rome, that uh, in their day of trial and temptation, it would have been very, very relevant to them to remember that that Jesus had gone before them. They knew about wild beasts in the day of trial. They had seen their loved ones die by those wild beasts. And what would it meant to know that Christ has gone before? Christ was brought before authorities. So were they. Christ was falsely charged so were they. Christ was publicly beaten, so were they. Christ was killed, so were they watching thousands of their number for the years to come. Christ was betrayed. He was handed over to authorities by his own familiar friend, as we just sang about, as a matter of fact. Some of Jesus' own disciples crumbled under that persecution, as we know that Peter himself did. But the Lord restored Peter. And when Jesus was tried before the Roman governor, there he remained steadfast and true, and the governor marveled at him. And he was tortured in the extreme and nailed to the cross, where 
He prayed for his persecutors, Father, forgive them. And even the Roman centurion who saw how he died and heard his dying words marveled and believed, Mark records for us, and said, surely this man was the Son of God. These, uh, this recalling of Christ is very well suited to a people who are going to have to take up their cross and follow Jesus. So it is a challenge. But to people under persecution, it is a great comfort. Our Savior has walked this path. And he said, follow me. In particular, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that just what we were expecting? Our Savior has walked the path himself. Our Lord himself has gone before, and we have fellowship with him in his sufferings. Mark is eager for these persecuted believers in Rome to know that these sufferings do not mean that something has gone wrong, that God has abandoned you. These sufferings mean that you are sharing in the very sufferings of Christ, that you are following him. Take courage. Bear witness as he did. Be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life. You can forgive your persecutors. In your death, others will believe, and the blood of the martyrs, as Tertullian said, will become the seed of the church. Now, dear friends, we don't face the kind of persecution that that they did, but the book does have a message for all of God's people at all times. And whatever should happen in the future, whatever we think the worst-case scenario is for ourselves, whether we would find ourselves misrepresented by government authorities and falsely accused and considered a public enemy or a traitor, treasonous, lied about, reviled, vilified, hated by the community, remember this, it's, it's not as though something wrong has happened. It's not that God has forsaken us. This is what it means to follow Christ. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And when we find ourselves in various difficulties and struggles, we are reminded that we are just in the right exact place because this is what we are to expect. When we, when we say that we want to follow Christ, that we want to be Christ-like, what do we mean? Maybe that we want to be gracious, kind, and um, holy, and merciful, and good. That is being Christ-like. But Mark is giving us uh, another understanding as well. It's very Christ-like to be falsely accused and lied about and to be unfairly treated and persecuted and condemned and suffer. And this is an enormous encouragement for us in hard times. It is a challenge if we haven't gone through it, but it is a comfort when we are going through it that we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, it says, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Yes, endure him. Sorry, uh, uh, um, here is him. He who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, lest you also become weary and discouraged in your souls. Many times in history when God's people have 
found themselves maligned, opposed, persecuted, having lost the community's goodwill, met with official hostility. They've not handled it well. They have returned insult for insult and uh, cursed their persecutors. Peter rebukes the Lord when he speaks of his own cross. This is not what is supposed to happen to you. Jesus says, no, 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 not just me, Peter. You also. He calls all the disciples and he says, no, this is what is coming for us Christians. And so it is we tell people to come to Jesus and to follow Jesus as we should. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, here it includes something very serious, a cross. And perhaps this book of Mark will become more relevant and more precious to us in coming days. I I don't want to glorify the past, but perhaps generations in the past in America will not meet as much official and cultural hostility as generations to come. We are living at a time of intense change, surely, and many of God's people are going to experience certainly different kinds of hostility or even official vilification. I don't think we're going to be thrown to lions or set alight, but there are lions of hatred and mocking and lies, and those lions have sharp teeth. There is the burning of false accusation and slander, and many of God's people are being intimidated. But this is not a, this is not a pessimistic book. On the other hand, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. There is a message here that if the Lord Jesus is worth anything, he's worth everything. And this is the overriding message of the book. It it, it is a difficult thing to follow, but a very blessed thing. When the world itself becomes conscious that we are his and that we are walking according to him in the world, Peter writes elsewhere to the church in his own hand here, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We have been given a life that we cannot in any case keep, but we are in Jesus gaining a life that we can never lose, one that is eternal. And he says elsewhere in this book that even in the meantime, though it comes with a cross, it comes with far more, uh, every loss that we bear is more than made up to us. Uh, In a few chapters, Peter says, see, Lord, we have left all and follow you. Look, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus replies, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What does he mean? Now, in the present time, anyone who's had to lose brothers or sisters or mothers will get a hundredfold? Where are they? Where are these hundredfold brothers or sisters or mothers? Well, here we are. And so you see, 
this book is not a pessimistic book. It's saying you're receiving even now a hundredfold with persecutions. But it's changing our perception forever. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Here we are. And what is ours here is ours forever. Yes, the, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Yes, the kingdom of heaven <laughs> may well cost you everything. It does in principle. But for joy, a man will give it to receive the treasure. He is explaining the cost of discipleship in such a way that we might know that it is more than offset by the joy of the treasure that we are receiving of surpassing worth. Again, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he has found a pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And the man says to himself, I have a hundred times what I had before now. So it is with eternal life, you see, in the kingdom of heaven. Following people today is practically effortless, right? With social media, you can follow people with the click of a button at absolutely no cost to us. Indeed, celebrities have millions of followers and ask for very little in return. You have to watch those five-second ads, but then you can skip, right? Uh, cost us nothing to follow. I say in conclusion that following Jesus is something quite different. No matter what form or direction a Christian life may take, there is, there is going to be something of this cost, of this cross, with something bold and remarkable in taking it up. And that means the spirit of the noblest surrender of ourselves and a spirit of self-denial and a turning away from all vengeance and a sharing with the sorrows and trials of many others. And this is the spirit that the Lord is after. The Christian life must therefore be something glorious and extravagant if it would hold out all this. It makes extravagant demands. Someone who lives it faithfully will find themselves doing all kinds of things that almost nobody in the world would think that they should ever do. And so you see that this, this call to die has a heroic element in it. The evidence that we are following one as great as Christ and that he has our whole heart without reservation. This is what it means to take up a cross and to follow him. Or famously Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarized it this way in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He, he writes, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be the death of that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, yes, it is death. But it is a death that brings eternal life. Yes, it is giving everything. But it is gaining far, far, far more. To be clear, there is 
no cost to be a Christian in the sense that Jesus has paid it all. And there's absolutely nothing that any of us could ever do to add to the death of the Son of God for our salvation, which we have received. There is nothing that we can do to earn it or to make it up to God. But as I mentioned last time, as soon as you begin to follow Christ, then the great enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil begin exacting a heavy cost indeed. Nothing to pay to God. It's a free gift. He has paid it all, but a price to be paid nonetheless. But in this cost, we also learn that we have gained far, far more, something of greater worth when we have received Jesus. What did Paul say at the beginning? I count all this that I had achieved dung, is the actual word, refuse, scubala, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He was evermore a hunted man, no longer the uh, proud young ruler uh, uh, in the council of his nation, now the despised preacher of a despised faith, but he was the happiest man alive. And John Flavel wrote, I beseech you, set your souls upon this lovely Jesus. Away with these empty nothings. Away with this vain, deceitful world, which deserves not the thousandth part of the love you give it. Let all stand aside and give way to Christ. Give all to gain him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bring us to uh, a greater realism about the folly and the foolishness, the, the worthlessness of the things that are soon to pass away. And the greatness and the glory and the beauty of the eternal things which even now have begun to dawn. May the things of man be seen for what they are and the things of eternity be more and more our, our aim. We pray that you would give us grace to be Christ-like and to have the great honor of being allowed to carry a cross after him. We pray, our Father, that you would give us uh, that same wisdom and constancy and grace, uh, answering back in kindness and blessing uh, to be able to acquit ourselves even as our Lord himself did on his cross. May it be to the eternal glory of your name in this world. May many see and believe and may Christ Jesus be honored in our life and in our death, for to live, uh, for, uh, for to die is Christ, uh, sorry, for to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.